Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Welcome back to Frictionless Marketing. Sally Sussman is the EVP and Chief Corporate Affairs Officer at Pfizer US, where she leads engagement with all of Pfizer's external stakeholders overseeing communications, corporate responsibility, global policy, government relations, investor relations, and patient advocacy. She also serves as Vice Chair of the Pfizer Foundation. Prior to joining Pfizer, Sally held multiple senior communications and government relations roles at Estee Lauder and at American Express. Earlier in her career, Sally spent eight years on Capitol Hill focused on international trade issues. Sally also serves as the co-chair of the International Rescue Committee, one of the world's largest humanitarian aid organizations. Sally has been named a top voice on LinkedIn, a PR Week Influencer 50, a Provoke.com Influence 100 member, and was ranked as number two on Fast Company's Queer 50 list, in addition to many, many more industry lists. Being at the forefront of the fight against COVID with Pfizer's vaccine efforts, the past two years have marked a series of unique challenges for Sally and the entire Pfizer team, culminating with the brand achieving top 10 brand status and becoming a favorable household name across America. In this interview with Lippy Taylor CEO Paul Dyer, Sally discusses these challenges and how she and her team were able to overcome the adversity of the past 24 months. Here, without further ado, is Pfizer's Sally Sussman. Hello, and welcome back. Thank you for joining us. This is Paul Dyer, CEO of Lippy Taylor Group, and I am thrilled to be joined today by Sally Sussman. Sally is the Chief Corporate Affairs Officer at Pfizer, as well as Vice Chair of the Pfizer Foundation and Co-Chair of Pfizer's Political Action Committee. Sally, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's really my pleasure. What a great way to start the year. Yeah, we're, we agree. We're thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with you. For those who, who follow the um, all of the many influencer lists in our industry and health influencer lists in our industry, I'm pretty sure Sally has been on all of them for um, many, many years now. So Sally, we're really thrilled to be getting some of your insights today. Um, we wanted to start out um, and we're going to talk something specific to Pfizer and something specific to the industry, but we wanted to talk at, talk first about sort of the role of communications in the marketing mix and how that's evolved over the last couple of years. Because here we are, it's 2022. We're starting essentially the third year, although we're only two years in, but starting the third year of the calendar year of the pandemic. A lot's changed during that time. Um, communications leaders now obviously being expected to be more of a catalyst for action um, as opposed to just communication um, within organizations. So would love to hear your perspective on how people are looking to communications differently to help sort of solve and heal the world's problems. Thanks, Paul. You didn't start with an easy question. I mean, that's a that's a multiple multifactorial question on some of the most important topics. Um, speaking from my perch at Pfizer, I would say that um, communications and expressing a company's character became paramount through the crisis. You know, I am fortunate to work with some tremendous marketers and some incredible products, but even they offered, volunteered really, to sort of take a back seat during the pandemic to some of our 
our needs and opportunities to reintroduce Pfizer, to talk about our science first approach, to um, doing some corporate advertising, frankly, that we hadn't done in a long time. And ultimately, uh, right towards the end of um, 2020, beginning of 21, to unveil a new brand um, in the middle of all this, really because more relevant than advertising for a specific therapy at a time when doctor's offices were closed um, and Pfizer's coming forward with a breakthrough technology in record time, the job of the communications team to explain, educate, build bridges to stakeholders really came to the front. And it was a tremendous honor and opportunity and, and great time to be doing all of that. I love that. And and it's it's also it brings to mind sort of the changing nature of the stakeholders, you know, that we that we engage and that we um, represent and things like that. We talk a lot at, at Lippy Taylor Group about the consumerization of healthcare, And obviously, in one hand, that means patients and caregivers and advocates, but it's also employees, it's retail investors, it's society at large, you know, now having different expectations of companies. Um, so I'm curious, first of all, just sort of what's your perspective on that? Do you agree, you know, um, you know, with the idea that healthcare is being consumerized? Um, and then how do you think about prioritizing among Pfizer's many stakeholders? I, I do. I do think that healthcare has become a more consumer focused. We have wearables. We're counting our steps. Um, you know, we have all kinds of 23andMe options to learn more about our, our human makeup. Um, people are interested. So that is definitely an undercurrent that, that was happening and, and continues to happen. I think for me personally, the stakeholder of the patient really came to the front. And, you know, pharma companies like to say we're patient-friendly, we're patient-first. but when the patient is everybody, you know, from your grandma to your kid. Um, it takes on a, a different sense of urgency. And when the world is now talking about clinical trials and um, efficacy, data efficacy, and things that used to be really kind of behind the curtain is now um, a daily conversation around the dinner table, really thinking about how we connect with patients has become truly for me, like never before, Paul, a frontline first uh, thing I think about. Fortunately, when you work in the science area and you work with a lot of scientists, it is naturally their first constituency as well. So, you know, I've, I, I always think employees are extremely important. Try to keep employees as uh, a community front of mind. But in the situation of the pandemic, really the employee wishes and the public wishes came together in a, in a very, very powerful way. You'll never hear me say that I, I don't care about government leaders or opinion leaders or KOLs or media, but really they became a means to an end for us as we were trying to reach the public and to build confidence in the new technology, in the vaccine. So, um, you know, the, the work of building bridges between stakeholders for me is my life's work. Over the last two years, it was patients first, 
employees right behind. And what an amazing you know story. And I'm sure that um, many of us are ho- hoping you'll someday write a book about this entire experience. But um, it's interesting, you know, the way you position, of course, we all know this, but to hear you say the patient was everyone, you know, like that really is different. And um, it also, of course, means that Pfizer and the vaccine were sort of thrust into becoming somehow a politically polarized topic. And yet, Pfizer seems to have received overwhelmingly positive reputation effects from from that. Um, first of all, would you agree with that? Is that what your data is saying as well? You know, that the reputational effects for Pfizer have been very positive. And then secondarily, I guess I'm wondering, how did you manage through all of that with so much noise um, about the vaccine um, and and really obviously do so in such a masterful way? Well, thank you. It's a very generous question. And yes, our research shows that, um, you know, we went from a, a brand that had a reputational struggle to a top 10 brand, not top 10 pharma brand, but top 10 global brand. And that I know both quantitatively and qualitatively that we have really created deep and hopefully lasting relationships on both sides of the aisle in the U.S., and similarly around the, with political and government leaders around the world. I hope you won't mind if I tell what I will try to make a brief story about the political ex- experience. And, and that Please. was, thank you. When in March of 2020, my boss, Pfizer CEO Albert Borla said, we're going to have a vaccine in eight months. We all, you know, did a double take and we shook our head and couldn't believe that a eight to 10, 12 year process would be accomplished in eight months, but we set to, we set about doing that. And it never dawned on us that that would also coincide with the U.S. presidential election. Believe me, in March of 2020, through the summer, it was the furthest thought from our mind. And we very much tried to navigate a course for the company that wasn't political. So we were the only company that did not take any government funding. We preferred to go it alone. Um, you know, we, we really felt that our, our independence was an important asset in this process. And frankly, Pfizer's a big company. It's a 171-year-old company. And unlike some others in, in the field, we didn't really need it. So, you know, we didn't want to take what we didn't need in terms of support and financial backing, et cetera. So come the fall, I'm watching the first presidential debate uh, between then-President Trump and Vice President Biden. I've got my glass of wine, my bowl of popcorn. I'm settled in for the debate. And within the first, within the opening comments, you know, President Trump says that he has been in touch with the company and he's expecting the vaccine very shortly. The implication was before the election. And, you know, I I threw my popcorn bowl and I started texting with Albert and we couldn't believe it because we did not want, Pfizer is not a political entity and and we are not a partisan institution. And it was a terrible thought that someone could think we would be rushing the vaccine ahead of the election. Let me also say that both sides were guilty in this. Um, Some people wanted us to hurry up the vaccine before the election. 
And other people wanted us to slow down the vaccine and wait until after the election. And of course, we would do neither. Um, and so that night I couldn't sleep. I, I worked on a document back and forth with Albert, um, a letter to the editor, basically saying that we were moving precisely at the speed of science, that we would never cut corners for politics, that we you know, had a, reput- a, a responsibility to our 170-year legacy, et cetera. I then go try to sell this letter to all the major publications, New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and no one will take my letter. So I'm embarrassed. You know, I can't get this letter placed. I'm sure many of your listeners have had this experience. Um, And the reason was, is I was trying to de-escalate the politics. And in our media environment, people want escalated uh, tension and anxiety. And I was unwilling to throw any uh, punches politically. So we decided to issue the letter to our U.S.-based colleagues and to place it on our website. The letter went immediately viral. All of those papers that turned their nose up at as an opinion piece ended up covering it as, um, you know, as content, as, as earned media. And I learned a big lesson, which is that when your company is in the center of it, you don't really need to go through the media. You can use your company website as your own content vehicle. And from that point forward, we started regularly posting all of our updates, our clinical trial updates, our data readout. And it worked better than going into any kind of handshake deal with a single media entity. So I digress slightly from your question. Um, we never we never intended to be political. I think the reason Albert put me on the small team of people who worked on this was knowing that it would be tragic to have a vaccine that was effective and available, but, but for whatever reason, um, untrusted. And as we know, we still are struggling with vaccine hesitancy around the globe. And we need to, we need to work harder and continue to depoliticize it because it's not really about the vaccine in my mind. I think it's about society. It's about your view of science. It's about a lot of other um, issues which have unfortunately clouded the debate. What a powerful story. Thank you for, for taking us through all of that. And a powerful lesson also about the importance of you know, corporate storytelling and owned media, not just um, relying on, on earned media. Um, so I have to ask, this is probably going to come out of left field. Are you familiar with Disney's hit movie Frozen 2? Not Frozen 1, Frozen 2. I only know Frozen 1. Sorry. Ah, all right. So one of, one of the, the most popular songs out of Frozen 2 is called The Next Right Thing. And the main takeaway is basically when you can't see the whole journey, all you have to do is do the next right thing. And I was th- it was sort of, for whatever reason, it sprung into my mind you know, as you were speaking because there's so many times in our industry where you can start out with a plan, um, but you lose control of the plan and then you just got to do the next right thing. I, uh, I, I have to say, Paul, I love that. I'm going to check it out. It reminds me of a quote that goes all the way back to President Eisenhower when he was a general. And he said, I'm, I'm ruining the quote. I'm not getting it exactly right, but I, I know the sentiment, which is plans are nothing. Planning is everything. 
you know, so you can you can write the best player in the world, but it's really about being able to be nimble and move with what's happening. And planning is a sort of continuous process. Yep. I love that. And of course, then there's the more crass interpretation, which is Mike Tyson saying everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Exactly. But, <laughs> <laughs> so here we are, right? We're now at, at this this new place. You've got a new brand. You've got your top 10 world brand. Um, I've heard, you know, you uh, I've heard attributed to you that you've said it's the time as we talk about science, Pfizer and science will win, you know, that it's time for Pfizer to turn its moment into a movement and a bigger, you know, movement, not just about vaccines. So uh, can you tell us more about what do you mean by that, turning your moment into a movement and how do you see it coming to life? Thank you. Um, you know, when you have such a rapid ascent in public opinion and you go from really being kind of on the sidelines to in the spotlight, there's only two places you can go from here. Down, back to where we were, where nobody wants to go, or further up. You know, I don't think standing still or staying steady is really an option in today's incredibly fast-paced, fast-moving world. So how do we go up? I mean, where do, excuse me, where do we go next? And I I have two thoughts in that regard. The first is to run with this idea of the biggest medical advance in 100 years, mRNA technology. Pfizer's created an mRNA division. The day we heard of this incredible efficacy for the vaccine, our chief scientist said, oh my God, it's the biggest advance in 100 years. Well, that's not an opportunity you sit on. Um, And one of the really cool things about our new COVID treatment, Paxlovid, is that it came from a different division of Pfizer than the vaccine. So our, our first and foremost business opportunity is to continue with the breakthrough mindset. And if, if what we did with vaccines, can we do it in oncology? Can we do it in pain? You know, where else can we play with this um, sense of urgency and and behaving like a startup, even though we're a big old company. And um, that is is incredibly exciting and important uh, to continue the momentum. The other element that I've been thinking about over the holidays is something that relates a bit more to those of us in corporate affairs and communications specifically, and that is the need to combat arrogance and complacency. You know, I've worked in other companies and brands that have been top brands. And I always think the greatest threat to that, both externally, perception-wise, but also internally and culturally, is any sense of self-satisfaction or, you know, um, er- really, really arrogance and complacency. These are the things that are terrible for, for a company's pers- uh, persona and, perspe- and perception. Yeah, and that's obvious that you know you've you've been able to take a company 171 years old and as successful as it is, um, you know, and and continue to maintain that sort of that hunger. And that's interesting, the startup reference, because that's not what you think about typically when you think about Fortune 500, pharma, etc. Um, of course, on this line of thinking, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the TikTok campaign, right? So our teams worked together, created a TikTok campaign just this month. 
um, with creators sort of advocating on behalf of science and it's reaching hundreds of thousands of people, millions of views, all that kind of stuff. It's not your typical pharma approach, right? To be going into a channel like TikTok. So um, what are your thoughts on, on pharma companies exploring these more consumer channels, trying to reach people more like non-pharma brands might? Well, first, thank you and your colleagues uh, for the great work on our behalf. And um, you put your finger on something very important, which is that we are trying to have a different voice and to really present ourselves and introduce ourselves in, in a very, very different way. What some of the most gratifying um, outreach I've received is from people in other pharma companies who said to me, how did you do that? How'd you get that past the lawyers? Um, and, you know, first of all, at Pfizer, we have great lawyers. I mean, we have some of the greatest uh, business-focused, risk-taking lawyers that are just tremendous people. And um, the other thing is, you know, you just try. And in this effort to be much funnier, more nimble, more human um, in our, all of our social work, we've made some mistakes. And um, I don't need to recount them here in great detail, but they, there have been times when my team has proposed something and I say, let's do it. And then we get a blowback very swiftly. And you know what we do? We take it down and we move on. I mean, you can't succeed in this realm if you're not willing to fail in this realm. And so getting kind of through that, and again, a lot of credit to my boss for supporting us in this, um, is, is exciting to me. I saw a post um, recently that a lot of people re reshared, which said, um, not all heroes wear capes, some wear lab coats. And it's that kind of thing that's just cute, right? I mean, it's not, it's not like a monumental thought, but it's an important, celebratory, joyful kind of way to engage. And, and that's what the world is, is wanting from us, I think. I think that's I think that's right, and and it's great to hear you responding to what the world's asking for. Um, TikTok specifically, of course, is a millennial Gen Z you know favorite, which reminds me of um, several years ago. You uh, wrote an article in Fortune titled "Why Hiring Millennials Could Be Good for Business." Uh, some time has passed since then, obviously, but. Um, any new or revised thoughts on um, sort of the impact or influence millennials and Gen Z are having on the workplace or on the way that we um, do work? Sure. So I, I, I want to double down on that thought. And if there so many things have gone well, uh, surprisingly well during this time as we are communicating, um, you know, over video channels and stuff like that. The thing I missed the most is my ability to engage directly with young, aspiring, interning, new members in our field. And I'd like to think, Paul, that, that they get a lot from being around me, but I know for sure I get a lot from being around them. And in our field, you know, the, the credentials, I believe, are really earned through apprenticeship um, I, I learned the field by being able to work around people with more experience than me, um, watching how they 
engaged or didn't engage or when they chose to speak or not speak and how courageous they would be or, you know, how much humility they brought to the scene. And that for me is, is the part that's hardest, you know, podcasts like this one that you're hosting is very important. There, there have been some workarounds to the situation, but ultimately I want to get back in the room with young aspiring people in our field because that mutual mentoring and that idea sharing and perspective sharing is, is really, really important to the work that we do. I would argue almost as much as in any other discipline, uh, whether it's legal, financial, HR, it's all important. But for us, it's, it's a lifeblood. And it's something I really miss and hope that in this new year we've just begun, we'll get back to that. It's funny. I had a conversation with um, one of our young millennial employees right after we went remote. And she said to me, you're going to see, you're going to see, you can trust us to work from home. It's like, are you kidding me? Like I've worked from home my whole career. I have no problem with that. You're going to see, we spend a million dollars a year on this office just so that you can learn from other people and be friends with the people you work with. (laughs) Yeah. Like a couple months later, she, by the way, called me and was like, I'm dying to get back in the office. I just miss people. Like, so it's always, it's always having a balance of both. Okay, I know we're getting tight on time. I want to ask one last question that um, could be a big one, but hopefully, you know, I'm sure you're, you're the, the master of also being concise. So um, it's about measurement. So we're in this world, right, where stock price and perception of companies don't necessarily always seem to be linked like we've tried to make the case for years. Um, there's a lot of companies out there that are doing terrible things and still have great stock performance and vice versa. Right. Um, I'm curious when you think about measuring corporate reputation, you know, how do you think about that? And um, and how do you think about measuring Pfizer's corporate reputation? Sure. Well, of course, I mean, measurement is essential and I think it's important to do it from many different vantage points, not a single, you know, you can you can hire a lot of people. You can find a lot of um, off-the-shelf methods. My answer is to solve that with an and, not an or. It's not like there's a single, you know, pristine measurement. And and I would go for a mix of different kinds of things, opinion leader surveys, general public surveys, um, you know, to make it as global as your budgets will allow. These These are all really, really important things. And I'm certain that there is connection. Um, it's been proven to me over time that there's a connection between a company's reputation and the value that its um, shareholders believe that it delivers. But, and in fact, just last year, investor relations became part of my portfolio. Um, and I, that was new to me, so a learning opportunity for me um, and a chance to see how the storytelling of a company is really important to how investors feel about it. But I also think it's extremely important that people realize that's a marathon, not a sprint. And it's not a daily thing. It's not an hourly thing, you know, and I'm guilty of it myself. I call the head of IR and I say, why did the stock go down today? And he reminds me it's for many reasons and lots of things happening, some about us and some about other people in the world. Um, you know, certainly. When people think COVID is behind us, um, they're not as interested in Pfizer as when they're so concerned about COVID. So 
you know, there's external factors that weigh in. But it's important to see the connection, but also appreciate that you need to see it with a with a long vision lens. I think that's that's great advice. Um, and from somebody who's no doubt seen everything the market has to offer when it comes to uh, measuring corporate reputation. So, um, Sally, thank you so much for sharing your your stories, your insights, and your time. Um, I know that our listeners will greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Paul, for all you do. All right. Here, as always, are some key takeaways from this conversation with Sally Sussman. Number one, planning is important, but adaptability more so. President Eisenhower once said, in preparing for battle, I have always found that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. The past couple years have been a whirlwind for Sally and the entire Pfizer team, but they weathered the storm and came out as a top 10 brand in the world. Sally attributes it to adaptability, stating, you can write the best plan in the world, but it's really about being able to be nimble and move with what's happening, and planning is sort of a continuous process. It may be easy to say that Pfizer's reputation skyrocketed because, well, they kind of saved the world. However, Sally reminds us that Pfizer stood the risk of becoming a political tool when presidential candidates began making vaccine promises in hotly contested debates and news cycles. There was every opportunity for this to become a year of crisis rather than positivity. According to Sally, Pfizer was able to transform from a brand with a reputational struggle to a top 10 brand, all during this time period because in addition to doing the right thing, they were able to dynamically course correct and modify their plan as it unfolded. Number two, stay thirsty, my friends. After Pfizer was named a top 10 brand, Sally's immediate instinct was not to celebrate, but to ensure the company didn't rest on its laurels. She went on to say, I always think the greatest threat both externally and culturally is any sense of self-satisfaction or really arrogance and complacency. Therefore, instead of allowing the recognition to breed complacency, Sally challenged her team to keep their foot on the gas. As a result, Pfizer hasn't slowed down their innovation as evidenced by their recent TikTok campaign, combating vaccine misinformation, a first for pharma. Sally went on to say, there have been times when my team has proposed something and I say, let's do it. And then we get blowback very swiftly. Do you know what we do? We take it down and we move on. You can't succeed in this realm if you're not willing to fail in this realm, she explains. Number three, it's okay to own your narrative. Sally recounts a story where she felt frustrated that media outlets were preferring to politicize the vaccine debate rather than publicize the sound byline she had drafted with Pfizer CEO Albert Borla. In the absence of editorial opportunities, Sally and her team decided to publish the byline on their blog. In rubbishing the idea that Pfizer would speed up or down vaccine development to fit a political party's timeline, the editorial brilliantly stated that Pfizer was moving at the speed of science, thereby sparking a viral wave all on their own. Many news outlets that refused to run the byline were now covering the news cycle generated by Pfizer's owned media. Anyway, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. And to learn more about us, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thanks again for listening to Frictionless Marketing. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. 
If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.